Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We continue in this Advent season. What we're doing this year for Advent is we're in the Gospel of Luke each Sunday for these four Sundays, and, uh, and we've selected these four songs that are sung in response to the good news that the Messiah is coming, that His arrival is imminent. Last week, we considered Mary's Magnificat, the, the, the song of praise that she gives uh, when she's told that she will be the mother of the Messiah. This morning, we're going to look at Zechariah and his song. Uh, and so, just as a reminder of Zechariah's story, because we're not going to read the whole thing, we're going to be focused on his song. Zechariah is a priest, uh, and during his service in the temple, a, a very special day, in fact, there's some indication that, uh, that at this time in the history of Israel, a priest might only get to do what Zechariah is doing one time in his life, to go into the holy place and to burn incense before the veil that leads into the Holy of Holies. He's in the, the, the midst of doing this work, and an angel appears to him and tells him that he and his wife are going to have a son. Now, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are barren, and so this in and of itself is great news. But Gabriel, it turns out, is the angel delivering this message. Gabriel tells him that this son will not only be an answer to prayer, that they would have a son, but that this son would be the one that was prophesied in the Old Testament that would come as the forerunner of the Messiah, who would prepare the way of the Messiah. It's all entirely too much for Zechariah to believe. And so he, he, his response to the angel is to ask for a sign. How, how will I know that what you're saying is true? Gabriel says something that is, is relatively unique in all of the, the angel and uh, mankind interactions in Scripture. Gabriel says, I stand before the throne of God. In other words, what are the chances you think I've misunderstood the message? God personally gave me this message to give to you. And as a result of your unbelief, your doubting, you're going to be mute until the child is born. And that's what we see unfold in Luke up to this point. The passage that we're going to begin reading in in just a moment is, uh, is following the birth of John the Baptist, Zechariah and Elizabeth's son. Eight days later, as the Old Testament requires, the law of Moses, uh, John is being brought to be circumcised, and this is where traditionally they would first name the child. And in naming the child as the angel has instructed them, uh, Zechariah's mouth is opened. And this praise that we're going to look at this morning is what comes out. Symbolically, John's, uh, or um, Zechariah's silence is... Uh, is a, uh, a throwback, if you will, to the silence between the Old and New Testaments. You remember we talked recently about that famine of the Word. For 400 years, give or take, God has not sent prophets to His people. He has not sent a, a new revelation to His people. Uh, but here, suddenly in history, breaking forth is this good news of the arrival of the Messiah. And in the same way, Zechariah is silent until the arrival of his son who is that herald. And when that son arrives, he breaks out in praise. We're going to see in the, uh, the opening verses uh, from 68 through uh, about verse 73 there, a focus on all of the things that the Lord is doing for us as a people. 
uh, in 73 through 75, uh, we're going to see that there's a, a purpose for what God is doing, and in the rest, we're going to see that uh, the mission that John has and what it is that the Messiah is going to do. We're in the season of Advent. We remember the first coming of our Lord and are reminded of God's faithfulness and His promises as yet fulfilled, and look forward to their fulfillment when Christ comes again. We do this uh, throughout the year. We're, we, it's not only in these four weeks that we are reminded that God has been faithful to send His Son and that His Son is coming again, but it's right for us to give it particular focus as we come together and consider the Word of God. Our hope is in God keeping His promises. Our need can only be met by Christ, and love is what has moved God to meet that need. Let's pray and then we'll consider the text. Father, thank you for your word this morning. We rejoice in the good news that Jesus Christ has come. We rejoice in the good news that is ours now because he did come, because he lived a perfect life of obedience, because he took away the, uh, the judgment that is against us justly because of our sin. Uh, and Father, we look forward to the day when we will once again shout with joy because Jesus Christ has come again. And so we pray this morning that your spirit will be at work in this reading and preaching of your word. I pray that you would overcome my weakness, that you would accomplish all of your holy purpose in the hearts and minds of your people. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if you haven't already, please turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Three things this morning. The first, God in Christ visited us and redeemed us. God in Christ has visited us and redeemed us. Second, God in Christ saves us that we might serve Him. God in Christ saves us that we might serve Him. And third, God in Christ is our light to see the way to Him. God in Christ is our light to see the way to Him. First, God in Christ has visited us and redeemed us. Uh, it, these, these words would probably be 
uh, shocking all by themselves without any historical context, except that throughout the Old Testament, going all the way back to Genesis 3, in the very first time that God promises that an offspring of Eve will deliver us from the curse and will defeat our enemy, the serpent, ever since that time, the people of God have been waiting for the coming of this Messiah. In fact, if you don't understand this, then the, the Old Testament in its entirety is going to largely be lost to you. The, the Old Testament is the story of God at work to bring that promise to fulfillment. Uh, and it, it shows us a people waiting for Him to do so. A people who, in anticipation and hope, even as they cry out as exiles in the world, they are, are desperate in their need and their, their own knowledge of their sin, their desire that, that God Himself would deliver them from the curse and from their enemies. The word visit that's used here in our passage this morning is, is not a new word. Luke hasn't cast about and found a word he thinks is going to work pretty well. Luke is using the Old Testament language throughout the Old Testament. God is said to visit in only two senses. He visits His people in salvation, and He visits His enemies in wrath. Here we have the, the message of the coming of Christ. And you might think, yes, yes, the, that's the, the, the message of the coming of Christ for the salvation of His people. But it's also the message of the coming of Christ who in His work is going to establish the justice of the judgment of God. We've talked about this over and over again in, uh, in the ministry here at All Saints. That God does one act and in so doing brings judgment and salvation. Jesus Christ is the beginning of this great work at the end of the age. And so as Zechariah uh, hears this promise and sees the promise come to fulfillment, he was told that a child would be born. Unlikely. The text tells us, if you go back to read it, that they were advanced in age, right? Very unlikely. And not only has he been told that they're going to have a child when they are advanced in age, but that this child will be the forerunner of the Messiah, and as badly as Zechariah wants that to be true. It's got to seem also highly unlikely. The people of God have been waiting for thousands of years for God to keep this promise. Yes, yes, He'll keep it one day. It couldn't possibly be today, right? We've been waiting for so long. What are the chances that it's today? Zechariah has a hard time embracing this. But, but we, we can't be too hard on Zechariah. What Zechariah has been told is astounding, and, and listen in verse 68 as he says here, he, he characterizes what God is, has done and is doing. I, I want you to see the pattern here. First of all, he opens his mouth, and the first words out of his mouth are, are praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And then I don't want you to overlook that little, ordinary, almost boring word for it's the word that connects the rest of the passage to what he has just said. He is praising God, and why? Why is he praising God? He tells us, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And that's a summary statement of everything that's following. Everything that's following is unpacking this truth that God has visited and redeemed his people. Notice that Zechariah puts it in the past tense, and yet it hasn't happened yet, has it? Not in history, not for, for Zechariah. 
but his confidence in God is so strong. And under the, the influence of the Holy Spirit, he says that the God of Israel has visited and redeemed his people. And the first word there, visited, ought to cause us to gasp. It's not visited in the, uh, the rather mild sense that, uh, that God is present everywhere and we feel His presence and He gives us this you know, sense of comfort in certain circumstances and, you know, and, and he, he, uh, he comes to us and He, he causes us to know our sin. Uh, those are all true things. But when Zechariah here says He has visited His people, He is saying that God, who created all things, has taken on flesh and come to dwell among us. John will say it explicitly in John chapter 1 in his prologue. We have known this truth for so long that I think we hear it and we are at risk of saying, "Mm mm-hmm. What's next? Move on. I know there's more here in the text. No, let's stop for a minute. The God who created all things has visited us. He is not only in in some distant sense, some technical, systematic, theological sense, uh, taken on humanity, as Paul will say later in Philippians, uh, he condescended to us to do this. But the, the language of visit, even it carries with it the connotation of that fellowship, that love that exists between God and His people. It is love that has moved Jesus Christ, the Son of God, out of heaven and into humanity for our sake and for the glory of God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited His people. This is a truth that we cling to all year long. It will even come up in our teaching and our preaching throughout the year. But but in this season, we pause for a moment. And we remember this and we dwell on it. We meditate on this truth and what it means about who our God is. What our God does. And who we are to Him. Because He has visited us. What joy belongs to us? What hope? What encouragement to know that the God who has made promises has always kept His promises. And they are not light promises. They are impossible promises. Absurd promises. Promises which we do not deserve and which apart from God's absolute power, His omnipotence, He and no one else could possibly keep. And yet He's kept them. He has visited and redeemed His people. God in Christ has visited us and redeemed us. The incarnation, the enfleshment of the second person of God is one of the most astounding, shocking And I mean this in the best sense, but absurd things that has ever happened in all of the history of creation. And it wasn't a parlor trick. He has done it for our salvation. 
He has done it because of the love that he has for us. What Luke will record earlier in Zechariah's song is the tender mercy that is ours towards us. What love, what condescension. What will such a God not do for his people? He's not only visited us, but he has redeemed his people. Another word that if you've been a Christian for very long at all, has probably entered into your vocabulary and become a word that you almost skip over as you read. You're so familiar with it. But pause for a moment. Redemption is to take something back that's been lost. The, the gospel, the good news of who Christ is and what Christ has done and is doing is the fulfillment of the promise made in Genesis 3.15 when God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden. And having sin, He pronounces judgment on them for their sin. The penalty for sin is death, but He does not leave them, as the Catechism says, in the estate of sin and misery, but is pleased by a Redeemer to take them back to himself. I will put enmity between you and the serpent, between your offspring and his offspring. That is, we had fellowship, God and man. We, mankind, broke that fellowship with God and established fellowship with the serpents. And God says to us, I will not let this stand. One will be born to Eve who will break the fellowship you have with the serpent, and restore the fellowship that we have with one another. Listen, that's what is, is bound up in this little word that we've become all too familiar with, redeemed. Redeemed is not a mere synonym for salvation, but in this word redeemed, we have the, the full truth of the fact that what God is doing in salvation is reestablishing His fellowship with His people. Brothers and sisters, this is deeply personal. God loves us. He has made promises to us. And He is, in, in a way that only God could do, He is at work glorifying Himself in the world by keeping His promises. If you think for a moment that what's at stake in the promises of the gospel is your salvation... You're, you're one truth shy of the fullest truth. What is at stake in salvation is the glory of God. And do you think for a moment God will not glorify Himself by keeping the promises He's made to us? God, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has visited and redeemed His people. Listen, we could stop right there this morning. You could spend the rest of this Sabbath day meditating on this truth, rejoicing in the good news that's found in that one verse for sinners. This is the God that we serve. He hasn't sent somebody else, but has come Himself. He's not been content to sit back and say they made their choice. Their fellowship was with Satan. He's not merely promised that He would deliver us from that alliance and form, restore an alliance with us again, but He has kept that promise in Jesus Christ. What a, a cause of rejoicing. No wonder Zechariah, having for about nine months been unable to speak, 
when his mouth is open, breaks forth in praise. The Lord God of Israel, our God, has visited us and redeemed us, his people. Second, this morning, God in Christ saves us that we might serve him. Look at, at verse 73 again. He says that God is keeping the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. God God saves us. He visits us. He redeems us because his character is such that his love, his mercy, his grace are perfect towards us. God is moved to us because of what's true about Him. But in moving towards us in salvation, even in glorifying Himself by saving us and keeping His promises, there's also a purpose towards which He is doing this in addition to glorifying Himself. Yes, for our good. Yes, verse 74, that we might serve Him. There's all kinds of truth here. The the more I prepared this week, the more I thought I've got three sermons here. And it's one of those Sundays where I've got less time than I normally do uh, to to preach. But look at verses 73 through 75 again. Look at what he says. Not only that the, the, the purpose towards which God is saving us, one of those purposes is that we might serve him. But notice the qualifier, without fear. Without fear, Paul says in Philippians that there's a day coming when every knee shall bow and tongue confess. And somebody, it may have been one of you this week, uh, was asking me about that passage. Uh, Will those who are lost on that day bow the knee willingly? What what will be the the sense in which that happens? And I, I don't know that we can answer that question uh, with with full confidence in detail, but. There's got to be some sense on that day in which they will do it knowing that it's right and true, but they won't be happy about it. They will serve Him. Everyone serves God. Willingly and knowingly, out of love for God, out of thanksgiving for who He is and what He has done and continues to do for us as people, or unwittingly, and if they were to understand how they were serving God, even in their sin, they would be furious. We serve God, he says here, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, we serve God without fear. We serve God without fear of judgment because peace has been established between God and His people. We serve God without fear that we will make a mistake because everything is covered in Jesus Christ. We want to please Him. We pursue God in righteousness. We want to know what pleases Him and we want to do what pleases Him. But we engage in all of that without fear of judgment. What a great gift 
to us, His people, that God has saved us. He saved us to serve Him. And as we consider what Scripture says about how it is that we serve God, we serve God by by being obedient to His Word, by living as He calls us to live, by pursuing holiness, pursuing righteousness, by being about the work of the kingdom, telling others about Christ. But it's not just that He has saved us for that end, It's not just that He enables us by His Spirit to be about that work. We're told here by Zechariah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we do it because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We do it without fear. Have you ever had a task set before you? And and knowing that you might not do it perfectly or that you might even fail to do it, you still were just having so much fun. There was still so much joy in the task. You wanted to do it right. It's not that you didn't care. But you, you, under, under the circumstances in which you found yourself, and maybe it was simply that nobody set you to the task. Maybe it's something you decided for yourself, I'm going to do this. I've, I've never spun pottery before, but I imagine that's got to be something like this. You've got to count on the fact you're not going to do well the first time, Right? But you don't sit down to the task afraid that you're going to fail. You sit down to the task enjoying the work before you. Why? Because in failure, there is no particular risk. You're not going to lose your job because the pot came out really, really crooked. Nobody's going to hate you. Nobody's going to think less of you. It's an imperfect illustration, but listen, that's what's on on, uh, offer to us in Christ and the gospel. He's going to set us to a task, and it's a task, unlike the pottery illustration, it's a task that matters. It has infinite, infinite importance. But what he has said to us in calling us to it is, listen, this is my work. I'm doing this work, and I'm inviting you to come along with me You're going to be my instruments in this work, and you're not going to do it perfectly. But don't worry. I will accomplish all my holy will in and through you as gladly, with joy, you serve me in the work to which I've called you. We we come to that section. It's kind of the end of this part of Zechariah's song. And throughout the verses that precede it, Zechariah is is praising God because God told us He would do these things. Verse 70, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old. There's the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant that are made direct, explicit reference to here in the verses. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promises that were made to David that a son of his would sit on the throne forever. And that son is Jesus Christ. Promises were made to Abraham that through him every family on the earth would be blessed. Paul's going to pick up on this truth right here, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham, and he's going to say that the the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. 
When God made promises to Abraham, it was the gospel, it was Jesus Christ that was being promised. And in the coming of Christ, Zechariah recognizes those promises made to Abraham and his offspring are being fulfilled. God is faithful. And He has done all of these things. And as we are called to Him, all of these things are done for us that we might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness. And then this last line of 75 is another one where we ought to just stop right here and just spend the rest of the day meditating on this truth before Him all our days. Before Him, that is, in His presence, under His perfect rule as our King who defends us, who conquers all His and our enemies. Zechariah has a a fantastic, clear vision of the person and the work of Jesus Christ and what it means for us. Finally this morning, God in Christ is our light to see the way to Him. How beautifully expressed in these verses. John is coming and he says in verse 76, And you, child, here he begins to talk about John's ministry, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins. Did you catch the subtle way that's expressed? He doesn't come to declare that salvation is potentially available. It's done. He comes to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of sins. Now John will, in his his preaching, lead with repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The salvation which he proclaims, though, is a salvation that is finished in Jesus Christ, accomplished perfectly in Him. John goes before Christ crying out, I'm paraphrasing here, the Lord is coming, make ready, repent, and be forgiven, and you shall be saved. The sun is rising over the dark valley of this fallen world and our sin to give us light so that we can see the path to peace. This is what John's message entails. Zechariah, his father, anticipates that ministry. And look at how he goes on to describe the nature of Christ's ministry to us. He says that that this truth of the salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins, this truth is because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. This is a a characterization of Christ's ministry. He comes in tender mercy, and He's like a sunrise. We are uh, a people for whom the image of a sunrise is nearly lost. At best, we think of sunrises being pretty. That's because most of us live in homes that are well-heated. Many of us don't leave those homes until the sun has well and truly come up most days. I remember uh, when I was in college and I was an ROTC cadet, 
We would do field exercises. We would go out into uh, the woods for three, four, five days at a time. Uh, and we didn't have buildings. There were no barracks or anything like that. We actually had the old World War II pup tents, which are miserable. And, uh, and our day started well before the sun. It was in the mountains of East Tennessee in the winter. Uh, and we were also using uh, all of our clothing, our coats, and everything. It was all old. It was all old gear, and it was not effective. Uh, and, and so we would wake up early in the morning, put those field jackets on, shivering. Slip your feet into boots that are blocks of ice because you'd sweat them the, the day before, and it froze overnight instead of drying out. We would come shivering out of these tents, and get started with our day. And we would be an hour, two hours into our day before the sun would come up. And on those winter days in the mountains in East Tennessee, the cold was just relentless. But within just a few minutes of the sun beginning to shine on us, we would start to warm up. Uh, There was a, a deep, sincere desire for the sun to rise. We were eager for it in the truest way. Zechariah says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us. Here he's he's wrapping from the beginning. He says he visited us and redeemed us. And here he comes back to this image. The sunrise shall visit us from on high. That sunrise is not an effect of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who is the light of the world to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Notice that He comes bringing this light, this revelation, illuminating the truth by His person and His work, and He comes not to the wealthy, He comes not to the powerful, not to the religiously successful, not to those who are not sick and don't need any help, He comes to those who sit in darkness, which is an image of prison. He comes to those who sit in darkness, who are imprisoned in the dark. He comes to those who are in the shadow of death, an older expression that essentially means that you are are so close to death's door that there will be no return. There will be no, no recovery from you from this illness. You will not rise from this bed. You exist now in the in the this very shadow of death. You're close enough to it that its shadow is cast across you. This is who Christ comes to. This is who the sun rises on and gives light to, to guide our feet into the way of peace. I've, I've got to wrap up. I'm not out of time. I'm way past time. I apologize. Listen, our God has visited us. He took on flesh in Jesus Christ in order to redeem us from sin and death. God said He would do it, and He has done it. Our God is faithful. He is moved by His tender mercy towards us. Having done this for us, we are now free to serve Him and to do so without fear and holiness and righteousness, and to do this before Him all our days. Before Him, in His presence, all our days. Not all our days until we die, because that's not where our days end. 
all our days for eternity. It's a different image, it's different words, but it is exactly the same truth that Paul expresses for us in Romans 8. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this truth is for us. This Christ is for us. He is ours, given to us by the Father. Let's rejoice in this truth. Let's receive the comfort that's ours from God. Let's pray.